This is AutoLine This Week, the show that gets you inside the global automotive industry. AutoLine This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode. Hello, and thanks for joining us on AutoLine This Week. When are we going to start seeing autonomous cars? Everyone's been talking about them for years now. There's a lot of controversy around them, and they could be transformational. Well, guess what? There are several companies that are already operating autonomous vehicles, and we're going to be talking with them today. I'd like to introduce you to Joe Moy. He's the chief executive officer of a company called Beep, and Ed Olson is the CEO of another one called May Mobility. Ed, Joe, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks for the invite. Joe, what Yeah, Joe, let's start with you. Uh, Tell us a little bit. What is Beep and what are you doing? Yeah, so Beep specializes in the deployment and management of these multi-passenger autonomous shuttles in uh, public and private communities. We've got about eight deployments where we have actually put on the road fully autonomous vehicles that carry about eight to ten passengers in what's called these first mile, last mile type use cases where we're connecting various components and services across public and private communities, doing it incredibly safely and frankly, approving out and advancing the use of these autonomous platforms in real life mixed traffic scenarios. Great. And Ed, let's hear the same from you. Uh, Tell us a little bit about May Mobility. Yeah, so May Mobility's vision is to literally transform cities by using autonomous vehicles. When we look at it, the world, we see tons of space allocated to parking, uh, streets taking up a huge amount of space, all being served by buses that are oftentimes too big for a particular route. So we, we're really passionate about building autonomous vehicles that can go in and provide a really high level of service to customers. And we are also live in a number of cities uh, and also internationally. Was this a build it and they will come kind of approach? I mean, you guys are pioneers in this. How did you get municipalities to sign up and say, yeah, we want uh, autonomous vehicles running on our streets? Yeah, so I'll I'll, uh, take a stab at that, John. I think, you know, one, there's a lot of states and municipalities that are really in advanced stages of testing and proving out the use of these platforms. Everybody, you know, sees, as Ed mentioned, these are going to be transformational as it relates to, you know, the mobility solutions in the future. And, uh, and as such, public transit groups, state DOTs, uh, cities, townships are really looking at uh, various means of how they can prove these out, uh, how they can use them as alternative transportation, uh, you know, vehicles for uh, either your personal transportation or for these larger buses that you don't want running through all the corridors of a downtown arena. So it's, uh, it's something that's being embraced and I think adopted quite uh, substantially in many areas of our country. Yeah, Ed, how'd you find customers? Well, I think a lot like Joe, a lot of the cities are ready to start experimenting. It's no surprise to most cities that uh, today's transportation systems don't do a great job of providing the access, equity, and accessibility that they all want. And it's not because they're not trying, their hearts are in the right place. But with cost pressure and sometimes not having the right tools for the job, they're looking for other kinds of solutions that can really help. And, you know, a fleet of 55 passenger buses can make sense for some routes. But in other routes, you really need something more flexible and adaptable, like a fleet of autonomous shuttles. 
So let, let's tell the audience a little bit about the kinds of vehicles that you're running, because uh, you guys have taken what I think is a very intelligent approach. You're going low speed only. You're going on uh, pre-programmed routes, i.e. it makes the technology far, far easier than trying to make an autonomous vehicle that will go anywhere. Ed, tell us a little bit about your vehicle and why you took this approach. Absolutely. So we ultimately are very aggressive and ambitious about where our technology will take us. But we think it's really important to build the technology at the same time that you're building the business. And so we, we really focus on the routes that are uh, financially feasible, where we can start to grow our reputation with, with customers and riders. And doing that today means lower speed routes with city partners where we know where the vehicles are going to have to go out of the gate. And while we're best known for operating uh, some smaller electric shuttles, today we are operating primarily in auto-grade platforms like the Lexus RX 450H. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, Joe, tell us a little bit about your vehicles and your approach. Yeah, so we partner with a number of suppliers of the vehicle itself, and our form factor is very specific to the, the use cases we serve. It is a, an 8 to 10 passenger configuration uh, it is a low step up ADA compliant type platform so that, uh, as Ed points out, we've got accessibility options for those requiring them. Um, very comfortable, kind of high tech type experience. And I tell you that the, you know, the two things that are most key to how we're leveraging these platforms is, is one, that rider experience, um, which is really important to the communities we serve and for the you know, people looking for these alternative means of transportation. And, you know, the second thing that uh, we haven't talked a lot about yet, but I'd say it's probably paramount to all of us in this arena, and that is safety. Um, proving out that these vehicles can, in fact, respond to situations on the roadway about 10 times faster than a human can. And, uh, and frankly, they're never, never impaired or distracted, which is the cause of 94% of accidents out there on our roadways. Well, you, you both have been up and operating. Does this theory bear out? Are they safer than a human operated vehicle? I think they are. I think the, the having sensors that are looking in every direction all the time, uh, not distracted, it does really allow us to, to provide an incredibly safe and reliable experience. But the other aspect, as Joe touched on, is that rider experience, too. Part of making a successful transit experience is something that all riders are really going to like to use. So how do you elevate the experience for the riders so that people will start using public transit in lieu of, of a personally owned vehicle, which contributes to congestion and, and overall uh, lower traffic speeds for everyone? Joe, you touched on that, uh, uh, a high-tech experience. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you mean there. Well, we've got all types of technology within the vehicles themselves. Uh, video screens, as an example, that are, are used to help uh, educate passengers on these autonomous vehicles and the experience that they're going through. They're also used to promote uh, community events or things that you may want to uh, you know, share in a, in a residential environment or in a public environment, even in the form of, of advertising. And so, you know, it's a high tech platform. And as such, you want the experience to be one that people would relate to, you know, as it relates to what the future holds in these in these vehicles. You know, we don't have a driver cockpit. Uh, you know, these vehicles have the, the means of manual uh, operation if we're required to do that. 
but it's not a standard vehicle you'd step into and see a steering wheel and a brake pedal and a and a driver's seat. And that's that's really very important to kind of how we're deploying these. You know, one of the things I'd add to that uh, that Ed was talking about as it relates to you know the safety of these vehicles. Um, you know, one of the things that's critical to our industry, and I think people need to understand this, is that we're very transparent about sharing the data and information we gather. We're collecting enormous amounts of video data on how these vehicles respond to every scenario they face on the roadways, as well as how does the vehicle react in a four-way intersection where, you know, you need to establish the priority of who enters that intersection or how it deals with a bicyclist coming up upon it and things of that nature. So, you know, improving the safety of these every day, every route, every mile is a real critical component of what we're proving out in these lower speed use cases. Ed, um, what do people think? I mean, you know, you guys are describing a, a very attractive kind of ride, but we all know that the general public is uh, skeptical or certainly questioning of this technology. What's been the reaction to the people who are getting onto your uh, uh, shuttles or into your cars? Yeah, uh, we're about 275,000 revenue generating rides into our adventure here. So have seen a lot of customers through. And we've heard a lot that customers are gonna be really anxious about autonomous driving and they're not gonna get in and this can be frightening. What we've found is that if you are serving a real transportation need, if you've got someone who's been standing out on the curb in the snow and they've been waiting there for 20 minutes and you come up with a, uh, a warm vehicle that's comfortable, it's gonna give them a nice ride and happens to be autonomous, they're gonna get in. That to me is the key to building the acceptance of autonomous vehicles, which is to solve real pain points and to really add value to the rider's everyday experience. And we've been doing that and our riders really love it. Joe, how about you? Yeah, hey John. You know, I'd add an interesting, um, uh, an interesting story about you know the the evolution of other components of technology, and and people often compare what's happening with autonomous vehicles to the original elevators. You used to have an operator on every elevator that you know would get you from one floor to the next, and 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 a lot of that was driven, yes, by some mechanical intervention, but also by having people become comfortable with the use of those vehicles and the technology, I'm sorry, the use of those elevators and the technology advancing. And I think that's a very similar parallel to what we're going through with these autonomous platforms. Once people read it and they're educated on it and they understand how it works and operates, adoption is not a problem today and it won't be in the future. But it is a process we have to go through and it's incumbent upon us, you know, to help educate those riders of today and the future. What do you charge for a ride? So current, currently in our communities, um, we are in, and we've got several master planned communities in the state of Florida, several you know, downtown areas we serve. Um, today, ridership is not uh, on a fair basis, so we don't charge for these rides. They're funded by you know, the development groups in these areas and or the, the transit operators. And, you know, we're ultimately going to have fair generated services in concert with other public transportation and transportation alternatives. But today, uh, in the spirit of gaining adoption and in the spirit of kind of getting people to utilize the service more and more, uh, we're not charging uh, fares today. Same with you guys, Ed? A little different. 
So we, we work a lot with cities and public-private partnerships. And when we work on a contract and a, a service offering for their city, they get a lot of say in, in what that service is going to look like. And like Joe, most of our customers opt for a free-to-the-rider model. But in some places, uh, they've elected to add some fair collection. And uh, Arlington, uh, Texas, is a really good example of this, where we're, we operate with our fleet of vehicles in a, in a geofenced area around the University of Texas Arlington campus. And in that deployment, you can pull out your phone uh, and book a transit, uh, a, a travel with their transit app, which is one of VIA's apps. And if you're within our geofence, you get matched to one of our cars and you get to, to ride. It's just that easy. And, uh, you know, it can be a couple bucks to ride. Joe, um... Uh, very interesting that, uh, you know, these rides are being offered for free. I'm, I'm assuming <laughs> that's got to be a great way to get people to say, yeah, I'll try it. Yeah, it is. But, you know, it's also, I think as Ed was hitting on, it's also, uh, you know, how do we continually improve the um, convenience of these services? Although we're talking about, in our case, geofenced fixed routes, you know, we're also deploying on-demand type services. So we, too, have an app you can download. In these areas, if you're traveling in Orlando or down in Port St. Lucie, Florida, to use those examples, and you can, you know, track where the shuttles are, what the, the service schedule is, and later this summer, you'll actually be able to hail a ride. So you can, say, pick me up at stop to I'm waiting here and things of that nature. And you can also connect fixed routes so that, you know, asset optimization, some, you know, uh, particular routes may be, uh, you know, more heavily utilized in the morning or in the afternoon. And so how do you deploy these shuttles in a configuration that is really optimized around your demand profiles and, and, and continuing to just improve the convenience and the usability of this service? So that's a really important effort, you know, that I think is just going to continue to drive incremental adoption um, as we're seeing today. And we're in the early days, obviously. This is brand new technology. Uh, at some point, though, municipalities are going to say, you know, we can no longer just subsidize this. So you guys must have an idea of your operating costs, a pretty good idea. You might have a good idea of what the public will pay. Can you ultimately make money at this? Uh, definitely can. Uh, of course, most public transit is heavily subsidized by city, federal, uh, state sources. So the transit operators themselves are not necessarily expecting uh, the fare collection to cover the complete cost of operation. But for a transit operator uh, like, like May, we actually have shown that we are profitable on our sites with AVs. And I think we're one of the very few companies that's ever been able to show positive gross margins on a live passenger public facing AV service. Joe, how about you guys? Are you going to be able to cut the cord at some point and uh, do it on your own? Yeah, I think there's two things that are in our favor. I think much like Ed described, we've actually kind of proven out with the work that we've done in these communities that the service is affordable. And, and you know, frankly, although, yes, there will ultimately be charges for various routes and services that we deploy, you know, today, uh, these developers are justifying the use of these platforms by driving down you know, the requirements for additional parking infrastructure by taking congestion off the roadways, by activating retail operations within a community. So, you know, it's there's a lot of business justification behind this versus just, you know, the fare and individual rider 
may be charged. And so we're doing a lot to, to drive those costs down. Um, or I should say, you know, create a return on, on investment that uh, a lot of these communities are willing to, to spend money on to ultimately improve, you know, the quality of the services in their areas. Ed, there's some real question out there with uh, uh, autonomous vehicles used for commercial services, whether it really is cheaper to take the driver out of the equation, is it? Well, I think you can look at the cost of a typical transit, a uh, full-size bus, an MTA bus. Those can cost about $750,000 to buy and between $125 and $175 an hour to operate, depending on how big a city it is. That's a very expensive asset. And the challenge with that is that in a lot of environments where you don't have the rider density to fill that bus, it ends up being extremely expensive on a per passenger basis. And it provides a relatively uh, not great experience too, because you end up with a long route, everyone has to walk a long way to the bus to get on, and then they're taking a tour of the city instead of actually to their destination. And so the value that we provide is with the smaller shuttles is that we can provide on-demand, uh, more convenient pickup, more convenient drop-off that takes you directly to your destination and still save the city's money. Oh, very interesting. So uh, you're not just running pre-planned routes. You're, you're actually taking people from wherever to wherever? It is, it's definitely geofenced. So we validate every city block that we service. But within that geofenced area, you can go from uh, any one of a number of designated points of interest to any other point of interest. Oh, great. So you don't have to go to a specific bus stop. Uh, you have to go to a place that's been validated where there's a curb cut and a safe place for the vehicle to pull over. Uh, but you don't have to just go to any bus stop and just wait until a vehicle shows up. In Arlington, Texas, you can pull out the transit app and one will come right to you. In other places, our customers are opting for a fixed route, which are more of a bus kind of model. But even there, we're able to provide multiple shuttles in place of where there was one MTA bus. And so the average wait time can go down dramatically by a factor of three or more. So, Joe, uh, circling back a bit, can you uh, really cut operating costs by making it autonomous and not having somebody drive it? Yeah, and, and the answer is absolutely. Um, you know, I would tell you one of the things that we're developing as a company that we feel very strongly about is, is the, uh, the need to ultimately have some level of remote oversight of these of these vehicles. And so we've got a command center that we've built out in Orlando, Florida, that currently has both uh, video and telemetry and vehicle performance information being monitored, you know, every time we have a shuttle on the roadway. So all of these routes, um, you know, are able to be monitored and managed and overseen remotely. And that's going to be an important step in removing attendance from these vehicles to where we can have kind of a one-to-many type formula of being able to intervene if there's a particular situation, you know, that requires some type of remote teleops. And that's where, you know, we think from an economics perspective, eliminating some of the labor is ultimately going to, you know, reserve, result in an even more attractive return on investment. Does the, the remote monitor person actually take control of the vehicle or do they just sort of tell the vehicle how to get out of a situation it's stuck in? Yeah, so not today. I would tell you probably 12 months from now, and there's a number of teleops operations that are still that are ongoing today. But in our deployments, 
uh, where you've got that targeted in about 12 months, where we'll be able to manually take control of the vehicle, send a mission to the vehicle, emergency stop the vehicle, um, things of that nature, which are going to be critical to con- continuing to advance the, uh, the autonomous side of this. Uh, Ed, how do you guys handle it? Yeah, we have a, a slightly different view about the role of teleassist. Uh, we certainly are, are really excited about removing safety drivers because that does expand our margins dramatically, as you can imagine. Um, and we are building a teleassist, but we make a, a big differentiation between uh, what some companies do called teledrive and teleassist. So teledrive, in my mind, is where you've got someone literally gas brake steer the car, usually over a cellular link. Uh, that gives us a lot of heartburn because you never know when your cellular link might, might fail on you. Our, our approach, and we build our own autonomy technology, is quite different than most, most of the rest of the industry, where the vehicle is basically asking for permission to do something that it might already know how, it do, how to do. And so when the vehicle gets stuck, of course, it's not really stuck. What it really does is it, it lacks permission to proceed without someone saying, yeah, that makes sense. And so our vehicle asks for permission. The remote operator checks the context and says, yeah, passing that delivery truck right now makes a lot of sense. Uh, you can do that. But then it's still always up to the car to decide when and exactly how to do that. And that, to me, makes a ton of sense because the car is covered with great sensors, giving it the vehicle much better situational awareness than someone over a cellular link. Yeah, and John, I just, I'd add, let me add to that if I could. I think that's... Uh... I think Ed's exactly right. This isn't about you know driving a vehicle remotely. This is about intervening in situations where, you know, frankly, the vehicles today can't perceive certain environments, although they're getting smarter and smarter every day and, and we're leveraging, you know, the intelligence gathered to improve their performance and their perception of each environment. You know, the reality is if you come up on a, uh, you know, a construction zone because there's a pothole in the road, you've got a flag person waving you around that pothole, the vehicle today, in my opinion, is going to require some type of direction to say, hey, this is abnormal. How do I deal with this? Can I safely go around? Things of that nature. So it's those types of unique scenarios, which is about, in our opinion, 5% of you know the, the entire use case out there on the roadways, some type of, of tele-assist uh, or mission management is going to be important to, to remove those safety attendants. Ed, we talked about uh, customer adoption. I mean, you know, people, you know, the end users. W- what are they telling you? What, what's their reaction to it? Well, uh, we sometimes joke about like a Turing test of autonomous driving. When a rider gets into the vehicle, can they tell what that, uh, when the vehicle is uh, driving autonomously or when, it, when it's not. And for example, in, in heavy rain, they might, it might not be operating autonomously. And what we hear is that they can't tell. And that's, a, I think, a really good sign that the vehicle is driving really smoothly and that they're getting a good experience. And I think that actually stems from the technology that we brought, we brought to the industry. Uh, so we, we build our own a, a self-driving stack It's based on about a decade of research at the University of Michigan. And one of the things it does is it's it's imagining the future 10, 15 seconds ahead and able to adjust its behavior now in order to prevent a high acceleration event that might occur, uh, that might otherwise occur in 10 seconds. And so the experience that you get in a lot of AVs where the vehicle is sort of responding to things at the last moment, we tend not to have that because the vehicle is anticipating so far ahead. 
And that, I think, really contributes to the riders feeling safe and that this is a, a way that they'd like to get to work. Joe, what are your customers telling you? Yeah, so I think, um, and Ed makes a really good point, there's several autonomous stacks out there that we leverage um, and, and, and extend, frankly, with some of the capabilities we're developing in our command center. But I do think that the, uh, the overall experience by leveraging platforms that are much more perceptive and forward-looking as it relates to traffic scenarios and, and what it is ingesting there as it goes, goes upon its route is really critical to ensuring a high quality rider experience. And overall, you know, when we've been deployed in live routes a little bit over two and a half years now, um, and, and every one of them, frankly, improves, you know, each week, each month as we operate it. it they, you know, the artificial intelligence and machine learning that goes on to adapt to the environments and learn from the environments and some of the changes that are going on be that construction um, or vegetation or whatever it is. All of those things are, are really critical to continue to learn from. But overall, the, the ride itself is something that, uh, you know, we get very high marks on as it relates to, you know, quality rider experience. Ed, we got less than a minute here. Quick question. We're going to end this with you. Uh, what's the future opportunity? Well, I think the technology is just going to keep getting better and better. And I think one of the key beliefs that we have is that the best way to improve the technology is to get out into the world now and to learn from the sites that you can, you can operate on today and use each one of them as a way of spinning up the flywheel so that you can do the next route and the next route and the next route. And that is really deep within the May Mobility DNA. It's a lot different than other companies that are more known for doing research projects. We want to get out there. We want to serve real passengers and learn from that and see where the technology takes us. Darn it. We're at the end here. I could talk to you guys so much longer. This is such an exciting topic. But Joe Moyf, the CEO of Beep, Ed Olson, CEO of May Mobility, thanks so much for bringing us up to speed of being pioneers with autonomous vehicles. Thank you. Uh, appreciate it. AutoLine This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode.